Good morning. Have you ever had one of these conversations? Someone just got back from Disney World, let's say, and you say, how was your trip? And they begin complaining. The lines were so long. It was so hot, which always surprises me that people think that Orlando in July would be hot. Uh, it was so hot. There were people everywhere. You paid a fortune for everything. And then you say to them, so you had a terrible time. And they said, no, it was magical. <laughs> and you're trying to reconcile in your mind, how did you just tell me all of these negative things and yet it was a magical experience? I think in some way, that's the way the reader of Galatians might have been uh, at this point in Paul's letter. Because when he had talked about the law, he had constantly been speaking of it in negative terms compared to the promise. It's the promise, not the law. The promise comes first. The law comes later. It's not doing, it's believing. And so people naturally would have been asking the question, well, then what is the point of the law. Paul keeps talking about it. And I think naturally you would expect Paul to say, it's useless. It doesn't have any purpose. It's uh, abrogated altogether. And yet that's not what Paul says. Notice in our text, Paul asks the question explicitly. Now it may be uh, because his opponents in Galatia are saying Paul has no use for the law. And so he needs to address it. It may be that just no way was he trying to say that the law was bad. And so he comes to the question there in verse 19. Why then the law? Why was it added? And as we look at this text, I want us to consider what the purpose of God's law is in the light of the promise and the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ, because that's what Paul does. Now, uh, a couple of uh, caveats here at the beginning. We are not going to say everything that can be said about the law, because Paul will return to this subject uh, in the next chapter and a half. And so we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how the law continues to intersect in the life of a Christian. Right now, we're going to deal with what Paul says here. So we're not going to say everything that we can say about the law. Secondly, I want us to recognize right up front, a whole sermon about the law probably doesn't seem that exciting, right? You know, people are like, well, I've loved all these sermons about, about grace and faith. And, and of course, anytime it's about Jesus, that's great, which, by the way, it should always be about Jesus. Uh, and, uh, but the law, that sounds like a heavy topic, and it is, and so I'm just saying it right up front. But I want us to look at the law under three headings this morning. First of all, I want us to see that the law is a magnifying glass. Secondly, it is a life sentence. And lastly, it is a temporary guardian. So those three, again, it, a magnifying glass, a life sentence, a temporary guardian. So let's look at those one at a time. First of all, a magnifying glass. We really see that in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, what is he saying? It was given because of transgressions. Now, first of all, let's talk about what a uh, command and so sin is just generally missing the mark of God's holiness and righteousness. Transgression is actually violating 
a specific principle uh, that has been laid out or has been given. In other words, if you have children in your home, let's say you're a parent or you're watching these children, and uh, the children decide that they want to pull out the dishwasher and use it as a sled to go down the hill after a snow. Is that a transgression? No. Because I bet you, as a person watching these children, nor the parents ever said explicitly, do not use the washing machine as a sled. And so it's not a transgression. There's no command that says, do not use the washer as a sled, right? It is a sin, however, and very bad stewardship, you know. There's no specific rule, and yet it is bad. And so a transgression is when there's a specific rule. So if you have a specific bedtime uh, that you had as a child, and you know that your parents always said you have to be in bed by 9, and you purposely stay up till 10, then you are transgressing a specific command or instruction that your parents had given you. So that's what a transgression is. So when Paul says that the law is given because of transgressions, it can mean one of two things. It can mean either A, something that I don't think it means, that basically transgressions increase. And I don't think it's that because God doesn't want us to actually increase transgressions. And so it must mean something else. And so the second way to understanding is that the law is given that we will be able to identify correctly our transgressions. It's like a magnifying glass. In a magnifying glass, you see things more clearly and distinctly than you do with the naked eye, right? Now, I know that uh, because in my uh, master bath, there is a little mirror there that has two sides to it. Uh, one is what we call normal magnification, and it's scary enough, right? You know, so you look at yourself, and you see normal magnification, and you say, wow, you know, age is not really being kind to you. Uh, and uh, you sort of bemoan that just a little bit. But then you make the mistake of flipping it around to where it's 10 times magnification, and then you just feel depressed, right? For those of you who are young enough that flipping around the 10 times magnifications does not discourage you, bless your heart. And uh, I'm very glad you're here. But for everybody over 35, let's say, you know, it is a discouraging experience because you see the reality of what your skin actually looks like. It's a magnifying glass. Just to see the reality is given because of transgressions. It enables us to see the reality of our transgressions. Or to use another example, uh, over the last uh, couple of years, we've all become increasingly familiar with uh, at-home medical tests. I don't know if any of you have one in your uh, cabinet today, but many of us now have a medical test sitting around our house. Maybe we don't feel so good. Maybe we feel a little run down. Maybe we have a little runny nose. Maybe suddenly our food has no taste. And so we go to the medicine cabinet, and we pull out this little test, and we run a swab in the nasal passages, and we put it in this magic little fluid that tells us whether or not we have the COVID virus, right? Uh, and when we do that, it is not giving us the COVID virus, in spite of what some of you conspiracy people might think, it is simply indicating, I know, there are a couple of you, uh, you know, 
those things give people COVID. But anyway, it's trying to reveal whether there is a presence of the virus or not a presence of the virus. And so you could say that the COVID at-home test is given because of viruses in a very similar way. It, it doesn't make it there. It enables us to see it more clearly. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that we have the law to show us, like a magnifying glass, the many transgressions we have in our life? Well, without it, we tend to think we're doing just fine. Have you ever thought about that? That when you just assess yourself and how well you're doing in terms of doing the right thing, you might actually get the false sense that you're doing pretty well. Just like if you keep the mirror you know, on the no magnification level, you might think your skin is holding up pretty well to the air climate and the high amount of UV here in Colorado Springs. But when you flip the mirror around, you realize that it's a different story. And when you actually spend time in the law, that is particularly the law given in the first five books of the Old Testament, but also the explanations of it given throughout the Old Testament and in places like the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at it and allow it to shine its magnifying power on your life, you realize that you're not doing as well as you thought. That's why it's important to know the law, because it enables us to see just how much sin there is. Paul, in Romans, in a couple of places, gives this same idea. In chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20, he says, For the, by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, it's helpful for us to look and know the law so we realize how deep our need goes. Or in Romans chapter 7, uh, in verse 7, it says, What shall we say then that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. In other words, Paul says that I was a coveter, you know, all along. But when you see the magnifying power of the law, and you say, this is what covenant, uh, coveting is, and this is what it looks like, you see it everywhere. He said, once the law came, I saw it everywhere. And you say, does that sound like a good thing? It is a good thing. Because to go back to our medical illustration, if you don't know you're sick, you will not seek treatment. If you do not know how bad it is, you will see what is hope and life, and you will have no use for it. You see, even today, we talk about the reality of the law as a magnifying glass because people need to understand that in and of themselves, they are filled with transgressions. They are violating the clear teaching of Scripture. They are falling short of the glory of God. There is a real and profound need that all of us have. And it is the problem of sin. Paul says the law, like a magnifying glass, shows us our need because it shows us our sin. So that's the first use of the law. That's why in any church that preaches good news about Jesus, we also have to talk about the bad news of our many transgressions and sins. 
we have to talk about the fact that all of humanity is right with so many sins. Paul, back in Romans chapter 3, he begins to quote passage after passage. It's one of those passages that uh, you, you really feel the weight of the number of trespasses that the law reveals. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that is a depressing collection of Old Testament scriptures. But this is right before Paul says, that's why we need God to bring justification in our life through Jesus Christ. Because our trespasses are many, but God's grace is sufficient for that. And so Paul says, you need to see how many and how bad those transgressions are. Why? Notice He says, until the seed, uh, the one to whom the promise has been made, comes. And we're going to talk about that in a second. In other words, it's showing us something to prepare us for something that's coming. But secondly, we see it's a life sentence. We see that really, uh, if you will, in verse 21 through 23. Notice Paul asks a logical question. Is there a law that has been or can be given that would give eternal life? Is there a way to get to life, the ultimate goal, but go through the law? And he says, no, that was never its purpose. Notice how he says it there in verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? In other words, is it two completely different ways of God working? No, certainly not. May it never be. Uh, Other translations will say, "Not, not not in any way. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What Paul is saying is, look, he's referring to the law in the Old Testament, but he's referring to any law more generally. There is no law that will lead to life. That was never its purpose. God didn't give the law so that people could fulfill it, and God gave eternal life. Now, he doesn't say it here, but let's think logically about that for a second. When God gave the law, that is all of the the things that people should do, and all of the things that people should not do, did he expect them to be able to keep it? The answer is no. If you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll find out that along with all of these rules, uh, along with all of the precepts that God gave, he also gave a system of sacrifice. And he said, when you sin, if you sin, you know, every year as a sacrifice for sin, there were to be sacrifices that would be given in order for sin to be atoned for. In other words, even in the giving of the law, there was absolutely no idea out there that people were going to obey it perfectly. And so God instituted the sacrificial system as a way of pointing to the promise that was given to Abraham that the way we are made right with God is because he declares us righteous because of our faith. He does it as a visual illustration through all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Those sacrifice passes, more than you can possibly count, but God will forgive you 
because you trust in his promise as visualized by the sacrifice of a lot of bulls and sheep and pigeons and a variety of other animals that lost their life as a signpost to how God would fulfill the promise to make people right with him by faith. And so Paul says the law was never given as a means for you to actually have life. And when he says life here, he means eternal life, a life of joy and of peace. He says instead of life, it was a life sentence. Notice how Paul continues. He says in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so isn't that fascinating? He says, the law will never lead to life. It's a life sentence. Here, this word uh, imprisoned means to be shut in on all sides with no possibility of escape. Now, that's very strong language. And at this point, you're thinking, is that a good thing? Is the law as a prison that hems us in on every side with no means of escape, is that good? And the answer is yes. Why? Because we are so creative that we continue to add the little yes buts and the what ifs, you know, whenever we think about what that magnifying glass shows us about the nature of our transgressions. You know, what we do is we say, yeah, I am pretty bad, and the people around me are pretty bad, but what if I could hit the, hit the mark for a week or a month? What if I gave even more money to those in need? What if, you know, I worked even more volunteer hours for the homeless or the working poor? What if I was actually nice to my sibling? For an hour. Lord, how about two hours or three hours? You know, what if I actually answered my mother's prayer and gave her peace and quiet just for a minute? Right? What if, if I did that, would I be okay then? You see, we have this seemingly, it's certainly not infinite, but it seems like infinite ability to try to create exceptions to the peril that we're in. We constantly are trying to wiggle out of the perfect judgment of the law, which is you have no chance. You simply cannot glorify or obey God in any way. You cannot. And you say, but what if? But what if? Yes, but we're constantly looking. And so Paul says the law is a maximum security prison. And those under it are under a life sentence. You know, what we, what we would want to say is above the door of the law, it says, give up hope all who enter here. Right? Give up hope. And so every time we try to make the exception, every time we try to go the hour or the day or the week, hitting whatever mark that we set for ourselves, and we fill it up. In other words, we need to give up hope that we can ever keep the law until you recognize how hopeless living life according to the law is. You will always 
think in your mind that you're doing pretty well. But when you realize you're serving a life sentence in an unescapable prison called the law, then you might start yearning for an answer beyond the law. You might start dreaming and maybe even praying and hoping that God would bring an answer. And notice what Paul says. He says this prison is a life sentence except so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. In other words, when I am sitting in that prison, unable to escape, and I see the offer of being made right with God through faith because of the promise in Jesus Christ, I suddenly say, I want me some of that. I want me some of that because I'm never getting out of this prison of the law unless someone comes and delivers me. As Paul has already said in the book of Galatians, unless someone comes and becomes a curse for me, I will never get out. So Paul says that's the whole idea. If you are still trying to follow the rules, if you are still trying to be right or be pleasing to God because of your doing rather than your believing, you are simply painting the inside of your prison cell pink with flowers or light blue with clouds, whichever you prefer. You are living in a fiction because it is a life sentence that you will never get out from. The only way out, Paul says, is to look to the one who was promised in faith. Thirdly, He says it's not only a magnifying glass and a life sentence, but it's a temporary guardian. And here we run into a word that I think has created confusion uh, in the past. We see it there uh, in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, this word guardian is literally pedagogue. And uh, because of uh, the way the King James translated this word years ago, it was given the idea that was very much 16th century, which was the idea of a discipler, a guide, a teacher, because that's how pedagogy had developed in terms of its etymology, in terms of how we use the word. But in the first century, when Paul was writing, And in Greek, that term was not a teacher or a discipler. That word was a a servant who had charge of a child from the time they left their nanny. uh, They had their nurse, their nanny, and then they had the pedagogue. And it was a male servant who who was uh, going to make sure that you followed all the rules, you learned all the etiquette, you did the right thing, and you got to the right places where things would happen. We call those people moms in today's world, or dads, right? It's, uh, it wasn't quite a soccer mom, uh, but it was somebody who got this child from being someplace to another. And they were known in the Greek world for being somewhat strict. They generally had a cane, uh, or they had other <laughs> implements that would remind these young people, when they were doing the wrong thing, when they were saying the wrong thing, when they were heading the wrong direction, you know, it, is, uh, it was a tough job. This was a taskmaster. 
And so this is the imagery that Paul is using, not, not your favorite first grade school teacher. I know that's what we wish the law was. We wish the law was our first grade school teacher. Oh, sweetie, I know you're trying your best. It's fine. No, this was an older servant who would whack you in the head, right? Get back in line, right? Now, I'm old enough that I grew up in a world where uh, junior high vice principals had a paddle hanging on their wall. Now, I don't think they're allowed to do that anymore, you know, and uh, what you were always concerned about was not just a paddle hanging on a wall. That might have been a veiled threat. I mean, it might have been an empty threat. You know, what are they going to do? Are they going to take that paddle down? Are they really going to use it? What you were concerned about was the vice principal that clearly had worn the varnish off the handle, right? When you, when you saw it up there and you noticed it was just sort of resting on two nails and uh, it had clear wear patterns on the, the top of the handle and the center of the paddle, you know, and what you realized is this is somebody I don't want to mess with. You know, I know, you're like, why would Pastor Chris have had to worry about such things? Well, because we're in an, a, a, you know, sermon about the law, let's reveal some of the ways I violated the law as a child. Um, when I was young, there were these things called records. And a record... A uh, record was a piece of vinyl that was pressed, uh, and magically you would put it on this little thing that went around in circles, and you would put a needle on it, and it would play. Now, I know, you're thinking, how could Chris have gotten in trouble for listening to musical records? Well, the problem is, in middle school, it was very popular to listen to other kinds of records, particularly stand-up comedians. And while Steve Martin was a gateway drug into my life of, uh, of listening to stand-up comedians, there came along people like Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor. And, and what we would do is listen to the records, essentially memorize the records, and then recite the routines to one another at the junior high table. The vice principal did not appreciate that at all. It tur- do not... If you Google these people, it's on you, it's not me. I am giving you a a, a rule that you should follow. Do not look up old Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor comedy routines. And when you do it, you can say, this is a trespass. Because the pastor said not to do it. And we did it anyway. I'm, I'm telling you, don't do it. It's not edifying in any way, shape, or form. But what I knew is that vice principal was not not there to be my buddy He was there to keep me in line. The law, Paul says, is like that pedagogue. He's not there to be your buddy. He's there to keep you in line. And in that sense, it is tough. He is tough. He is precise. He is going to keep you right down the straight and narrow. That's its role. And so in that sense, it's a guardian. He says the law is like a guardian. But I want us to see that it's a temporary guardian. Notice what Paul says about this guardian. Now that faith, or we'll start at the end of verse 24, in order that, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
In other words, we really have to get this because when we think about the law and we see that it magnifies our sins, we see that it keeps us in prison and eliminates all that creativity where we try to figure some other way to be right with God and enjoy life for eternity, that it absolutely is going to prevent us in those ways. And we hear that it's a tough taskmaster that will keep us in line. We say, well, what is the use of that? For Paul, the use of it is extraordinary and profound. It enables us to move from completely separated from God to being united with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He says the law all the time to the one who will come. The seed of promise, he says, uh, when he talks about it, uh, that given because of sin, or when he talks about it being the prison, he says it's there until, uh, the, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And here he says the guardian is given. Why? It's given so that we might come to Jesus Christ. In other words, the law always had an expiration date on it in terms of its primary purposes. And its expiration date would come when the fulfillment of God's perfect and gracious purposes in this world came to bear. And when did that come? It came when God came in the man Jesus Christ. And when he lived a perfect life, never disobeying the law in any way. And when he went to a death on a cross, not because he deserved to bear the judgment or curse of the law, but because he would be a substitute, that he would take the place of people who have violated the law over and over again. And Jesus, the third day after his death, rose from the grave to show that that judgment had been perfectly satisfied. That curse had been completely removed. And what he was saying is the law has done its job. Because it has shown the holiness of God. But in Jesus Christ, it also shows the grace and mercy of God. So that if we believe in him, we are no longer under that pedagogue, that taskmaster. We're no longer under the prison. We no longer have to fear the magnifying glass because the time has come. The technical word for this is the eschaton has arrived. I, I love that word. Eschatology is the study of the, the last things or the end things. And the eschaton is the last age. What Paul is saying is the law did its job until the end of the world came. And the end of the world came in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, wait a second, that was 2,000 years ago. It seems like we're still here. Oh, the world's end has begun. It's just not quite finished. It's called the already, but not yet. Paul is saying, look, the law always had a trajectory. And it had a trajectory toward fulfillment. And it found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know, for those of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you believe in Him. You need to have a different relationship with the law. You need to see that its primary purpose 
has been completed in that it has led you to recognize your need and embrace the offer of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then you need to say, thank you, law. See, these days, you know, travel has become more interesting. You know, we're not sure when we go to the airport whether our plane will show up and whether it will take us where we are going. So it's made us just a little bit more appreciative when we fly halfway across the country or the world when we actually get there. Uh, My wife and I now say, man, I'm thankful we got here. I'm thankful we got here today. I'm thankful we got here on time. It makes us thankful. Well, do I want to put a picture of the plane up in my room? No. I'm thankful because it did its job. It got me from point A to point B. Paul says that's what the law does. It gets you from complete alienation from God to faith in Jesus Christ. He says that's its job. It does it as a magnifying glass. It does it as a prison. It does this as a taskmaster, a temporary guardian. But its goal is to lead us to Jesus. Now, there are some of you sitting here and some people who aren't sitting here that don't know any of this. And if you're sitting here and you don't know any of this and you're completely lost, forgive me, keep coming. We'll keep trying harder because I want you to understand this. But people who don't know about the significance and severity of their need. They don't know how spiritually sick they are. They still need the law. They still need to hear just how bad it is. They still need to see they're in a prison that they cannot worm their way out of. They still need to feel the rod on their back, so to speak, of that taskmaster so that they will see Jesus and say, aha, That is who I need and put their trust in him. That's why when we share uh, the gospel, we always share bad news and good news. So that's why the law. Paul says it's not opposed to the promise. It works to accomplish the promise. May God continue to do his work that the kingdom of heaven will continue to grow and expand as people not only have the effects of being under the law, but are delivered from it through the grace of God in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. While it doesn't feel kind for us to see the multitude of our sins, we know it is kind because it drives us to Jesus. We know, Lord, that it doesn't feel pleasant to not have some other way to worm out of our disobedience and the the lack of glory that we get you. But we're thankful because it points us to the sin-satisfying, life-giving power of Jesus Christ. We're not thankful to feel the paddle of the law on our person, but we are thankful that it does its job of getting us to Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will make us thankful for the means that get us to Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.